Let's get into the word. First Corinthians chapter 15 is where we are today. Please turn there to uh, verses 12 through 19. And just to kind of get us going in this and have our minds uh, working in this way for what we're going to see today, I want you to remember this. Last week I read to you uh, some very interesting statistics. If some of you weren't able to be here last week. I, I want to make sure you hear these things. Uh, most of you were here last week, and it's worth you hearing it again, Okay. Uh, but in a recent survey done by Ligonier Ministries, unbelieving adults, unbelieving adults and what we often call evangelicals, professing Christians, were asked a series of questions. And in order to be counted as an evangelical for this survey, so if you were going to be counted as such, you had to agree with these four statements. Statement one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. So if I think something this way, the Bible says this, now I think that. Okay, number two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Evangelicals will be evangelistic. It also implies that if somebody isn't a Christian, we think they ought to become one. Uh, Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So those are the four statements that a person had to say, yes, I agree with that, to be considered as an evangelical for this study. And of these evangelicals surveyed, here's the statistics now. 30% of those people agree with the statement Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 46% of evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. Uh, That means a denial of the Trinity. 18%, a little bit lower number, but listen to what it is. 18% believe the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in Scripture. Um, remember, Christian, the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. We know we're being led by the Spirit when we are obeying Him by what's written in Scripture. And the 46%, 46% believe everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. I encourage you in that. If we are good by nature, then we do not need Jesus. We could do it on our own. And 42%, this is the last one, 42% believe God accepts the worship of all religions, all of them, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam. But they said all religions. 42% of evangelicals believe God accepts the worship of all religions. So just to be clear on that last one especially, 42%, they're saying, affirming, That only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Also affirming God accepts the worship of all religions. They said only Jesus and they said all religions. You see, those two statements contradict each other. They contradict each other. Okay, Opposites cannot both be true. Now, some of you may come into the auditorium today and say, I feel cold. I feel so cold. And somebody else may come in and say, I feel warm. 
whew, it's hot in here. And as far as your feelings go, you would both be right. One of you may feel warm and one of you may feel cold. That's true if that is in fact how you feel. But if the thermostat is accurate, let's pretend that's true. If the thermostat is accurate and it says 68 degrees, then guess what temperature it is in here? 68 degrees. Yes, yes, you're following along well. This is going to be good. Okay, 68 degrees. But but I feel like it's 90 degrees. Well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Might I suggest maybe that sixth coffee and your extra overcoat might be affecting you in some shape or form. But it's actually 68 degrees in here, right? Uh, to further give us an idea of the problem that we face, let me share with you uh, these numbers that I found in a Barna study. The Barna Research Group asked people to agree or, or disagree with these statements. So they share these statements and the person says, I agree with that or I disagree with that. This statement was the first one. Every culture must determine, okay, for themselves, that should be a boop flag. Every culture must determine what is acceptable morality for its people. That's statement one. Statement two, the Bible provides us with moral truths which are the same for all people, I think all cultures, all people, in all situations, without exception. See those those two statements? The culture determines for itself. The Bible says what is morally true for all cultures, all people, without exception. Okay? Among the Christians polled, the Christians, 47% said that different cultures should determine their own acceptable morality. And among the same Christians, not a different group of Christians polled, the same people, 78% said the Bible provides moral truths for all people in all situations without exception. 47, 78%, 47%, 78%. That's 125%. 125%. Now, I know in sports, you can give 110% effort out there, right? Everybody can give 110% effort in, in sports, but you cannot poll 125% of a crowd. That's just not scientifically possible. So what does that mean? Well, by my math, what that means is that 25% of Christians polled believe that morality is relative and that morality is absolute. It is 68 degrees in here, and it is 90 degrees in here because that person feels like it. Opposites cannot both be true. Church, please understand, if that's how truth works in our culture, I might argue, and it is, we're in trouble as a culture. And if that's how truth works in the church, in the church, and I'm going to suggest to you, it is. If instead of me preaching to you the truth of God's word, we all instead decide that I should, what I should do is feel my truth 
at you and then let you feel your truth back at me. And Lord, help us when, if we call that being led by the Spirit, which I would argue sometimes we do, we're in trouble. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we teach truth if there's no such thing as truth? How can we preach if there's no such thing as truth? How can Jesus say, sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth if there is no truth. Uh, by the way, just a little behind the scenes, guess what my pulpit says right here? Not my pulpit, this church's pulpit. I just, I just use it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Every time I step up here, I'm reminded of this. I'm, that wasn't my idea, but I love that. In reality to these questions, here, here's a pushback question. How can someone say there's no such thing as absolute truth? That is a truth claim. Think about this now. If someone ever says, there is no such thing as absolute truth, if you want to ask them something back, do this kindly, kindly, like, ha, gotcha. Not like that. But if someone says, there is no absolute truth, could you ask them, is that absolutely true? If they say yes, they've just disagreed with themselves. If they say no, they've just disagreed with themselves. You say, is that absolutely true? Do you know that to be true? Truth can't be known. Do you know that to be true? Christians, truth exists, and it is knowable. And if you want to be led by the Spirit, church, let me encourage you, if you want to be led by the Spirit and truth, be a fervent student of the Spirit-inspired Word of God. This is truth. And the Spirit is never going to tell you to do something that disagrees with what the Spirit told us to do. Because the Spirit told us what to do in His Word. It's there. And if someone says something or does something or teaches something and calls it Christian and it doesn't agree with this, with the Scripture, it's not Christian. Somebody might be a Christian who's saying something that is not biblical. I mean, who among us has never done that, right? We've done that. But it's only true if it's true. It's only of Christ if it's of Christ. So how about this? And how about instead of of learning the world's ways specializing in the world's philosophies, becoming experts in that, and then and then kind of sprinkling some Bible on top and finding a verse here or a verse there. Maybe it's out of context, maybe it's not, and, but we think we got a backup here. How about instead of that, we look to God's Word first. Let's assume that God is the expert in everything. And then let His Word shape our thinking. Not the world's philosophy shaping our thinking, but the word of God shaping our thinking. And thereby looking at the world through the lens of Scripture, instead of looking at the Scripture through the lens of the world's philosophies. Uh, yesterday morning I coached uh, a boys, middle school boys soccer game out at, out at Sunnyside Park, Parks and Rec. And, and we have to wear the masks for the game, so I've got the mask up over my nose, and y'all who wear glasses know what's happening, Right? The mask is up, the glasses are on, and I don't have the windshield wipers on them to help me out. So i got to put these things on top of my head. And I'm watching the soccer game. I think I see you out there. I'm watching the soccer game, and I'm like, hey, John, do this. 
I'm not John. It was a problem, right? It was a problem. An even worse problem. Just like I need my glasses to see clearly, if we don't look at the world through the lens of Scripture, we're not going to see things the right way. And if we, even worse, if we look at Scripture through the lens of the world, we're going to have problems, aren't we? We're going to misinterpret a lot of stuff. We're probably going to even think that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that doesn't matter a whole lot because it doesn't make sense according to our thinking. That's not where we want to be. It's not where we want to be. If we'll look at the world through the lens of Scripture, then maybe we'll be better equipped to look at things like politics. If I look at Jesus through politics, I'm in trouble. If I look at politics through Jesus, now I know what to do. And I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just telling you how we're going to think of it. And we're going to know this Jesus is king. And God holds the hearts of kings in his hand. If we let the scriptures help us to see the world, maybe we'll be able to look at things rightly like friendships, marriage, anxiety, depression, money, racial tensions, our entertainment, even how we conduct ourselves as a church. Could we do such a thing as to do church more like the world's philosophies than what the word says? Oh, we're able. <laughs> we're able. Here's the reality, which every single one of us needs to be humble and mindful of. Every single one of us brings with us all kinds of ideas, all kinds of thinking. And because we're human beings, right? Nobody's perfect in here. We're human beings because we're, inf- we're fallible, regular people. We bring, and we can bring worldly thinking into our Bible study, into the way we do church, into the way we counsel one another. We all counsel one another. It's just a question of whether we're doing it well or not. And we're going we're gonna to do all these things if we're doing it through a philosophy of the world that we've just always held. Something we've heard time after time after time. Maybe uh, just some Midwestern sensibilities, right? That aren't biblical. Are we always going to know that we're doing that? Are we always going to assume that we're thinking wrong? Well, no. No. Are we really prone to think that if something, uh, some thought that we had really feels right to us, that it must be wrong? No. When something feels right to us, are we prone to think it's right? Well, yeah. That's how we work. Even when it disagrees with something else we also hold to be true. We can do that. We're human. We can mess up. Well, guess what? This is not a new problem. This is not a new problem. There's nothing new under the sun. Learn that in the Bible. Right? Pontius Pilate didn't ask Jesus what is truth because he was thinking ahead to 2020. And in the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul identified and sought to correct this very same issue and particularly as it related to what many call the linchpin of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here was the problem. In this passage today, here was the problem. 
Paul had preached the crucified, buried, and risen Christ. Amen. And the church at Corinth believed and were saved by and in that resurrected Christ. Amen. They even continued to preach the resurrected Christ. Amen. And also, many of them claimed there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Not amen. Question. How is that even possible? How is that possible? Paul asked, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? How can you believe in and preach a crucified and risen Savior and not believe in resurrection? And then in this passage, Paul goes on to share seven consequences the church would experience if there was no such thing as resurrection. Seven things that would have to be true if resurrection was not a real thing. So if you notice, we're putting on our thinking caps today. And I'll just give you a little insight ahead of time. This is the second time preaching this morning. I'm just going to tell you right now, there's going to feel like there's this heaviness, 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 heaviness. Because if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, right? But he has. And we'll make sure to make that clear by the end of our time together this morning. But here are the seven consequences. Number one, if there's no resurrection, this is kind of the obvious one, Christ hasn't been raised. Second, if there's no resurrection, preaching is meaningless, vain, worthless. Number three, if there's no resurrection, believing would be meaningless, pointless, empty. Number four, if there's no resurrection, we are misrepresenting God. We're spreading false beliefs. We've become false teachers. Number five, if there's no resurrection, your faith is futile. It's worthless, which means, therefore, you are still in your sins. Number six, if there's no resurrection, uh, those who believed in Christ and have perished before, they've perished eternally. If they believed in a lie, then they are in hell. And number seven, if there is no resurrection, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. To be pitied. So, let's look together in God's word. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... If you believe in and continue to preach the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Do you see it? Christ was proclaimed in Corinth as raised from the dead, and people uh, in the church were saying there's no resurrection. Opposites cannot both be true. So how did this happen? How could the people in the church have believed these contrary claims? And the way I think it probably happened, just like these things can still happen today, is that there was a commonly held view in the culture. It was called, we call it dualism. Attributed back to Plato, the idea of dualism is that the physical, the body, is intrinsically evil. It's evil. Has been, is, always will be. And the immaterial, the inner man, our hearts, are intrinsically evil. Good, have been, are, will always be. Body, evil, inner man, spiritual, good. 
That was the idea, the philosophy. This idea crept into the church's thinking in different ways. Uh, One, some said that since the inner man is good and the body is evil, uh, that we can continue to do sinful things with our bodies because that's what bodies do. Body's going to do what body's going to do. But that doesn't affect the spiritual because the spiritual is always good. So in that view, dualism gave people an excuse to continue in sin. Another idea was that since Jesus is perfect and sinless, he must have never had a body. If he had a body, he wouldn't be perfect. Uh, They might say that Jesus just had the appearance of a body, but not an actual body. But realize, if that's true, then Jesus was not fully God and fully man. And if Jesus wasn't fully man, then he could not be a suitable sacrifice for our sin. Christ took on flesh to die for our sin. No flesh, no death. No death, no salvation. And then, a third idea that crept into the church through this worldly philosophy of dualism was the general disinterest, even the feeling of disgust, at the idea of being back in your body if you've been waiting your whole life just to get out of it. Does that make sense? This body is evil. It's holding me back. I can't wait to get out of it. That kind of an idea. Uh, one of the reasons the Greeks had to, lo- uh, to look forward to their death in their minds was just to escape the corruption their physical bodies brought. They were freed in their minds. Of course, we know that we can't blame our bodies for corruption. What comes out of our mouths comes from the heart. And the springs of life flow from the heart, Proverbs 4. It's what comes out of the heart, our inner man, that defiles a person. But the Greeks didn't believe that. Uh, So they did blame their physical bodies. They blamed their physical bodies for the bad, for evil. So the idea of taking our flesh back on after death would have just seemed like a step back in the wrong direction. Even a repulsive idea to them. Uh, But this idea... This system of faith, this worldview, it's not true. It's not true. Uh, Many of these believers in the church at Corinth had perhaps believed this their whole lives until now. That's what Mama always said when I was growing up. And it was still lingering in their thinking. And even, even the believing Jews in the church, if they'd come from the line of the Sadducees, remember the Sadducees in Jewish religion didn't believe in resurrection either. So if you put these things together, you're going to have a bunch of people struggling with this idea of resurrection, and for different reasons. But they simply could not continue to hold these views to be true alongside this intrinsically important aspect of our faith. And I just want to make this point right now, and this is not in my notes, so bonus material. Hey, first service didn't get this. Paul identified this problem. What did he do about it? Did he just, I went into teacher mode there, sorry, asking you to answer my question. He identified this problem in the church. They believed something true, and they believed something untrue that negated the most important truth. So he go, well, you know, it's okay. Oh, they're good people. Oh, they'll figure it out. What do you do? He said, whoa, how could this happen? Well, Paul's mean. Whoa. No, he loved them. Truth matters. 
And if we believe something that's not true, that's holding us back from all we can have in Christ, oh, Lord, send somebody to me who loves me enough to tell me. Amen? Because, verse 13, 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Uh, C.S. Lewis, maybe you guys have heard this. C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If Jesus knew, if he knew he wasn't the Son of God, and if he just said he was going to rise from the dead to get a bunch of followers, then he would be nothing more than a clever, super egotistical, sinful liar. If Jesus really thought, believed in the depths of his heart that he was God the Son, if he really believed he was the Savior of the world, if he really truly expected to rise from the dead after his crucifixion, but wasn't who he thought he was and never rose from the dead, boy, what a sad story. But he would have been considered a lunatic, a crazy man, who made crazy claims and gave up his life for them. But if Jesus really did all the Bible says he did, if Jesus really said all the things the Bible tells us he said, and if Jesus really rose from the dead, then who must he be? Our Lord, our God and Savior. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, then Jesus has to either be a liar or a lunatic. Church, he's our Lord. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is number two and three, the second and third consequences if there's no resurrection. Number two would be the vanity, the emptiness in preaching, our proclamation of the gospel. Number three would be the vanity or the emptiness of our faith in the gospel. Remember back up in verses three through five, this early creed of the church. It was this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then goes on to say even more up to five hundred. The dominoes start to fall logically, don't they, in all of this? And we're going to see that more as we move through this passage, but to consider the vanity of our preaching and believing if there's no resurrection. My mind goes to the martyrs of Revelation 6 who cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Imagine those who are martyred for their faith in the resurrected Christ, martyred for preaching the gospel, for translating the Bible into languages that people could understand and read so they could learn about the Lamb of God who died for their sins and rose again. Uh, interesting story. I read this this week. Did you know that John Wycliffe, he died of a stroke, but the church, the Catholic church, decided later on he should have been excommunicated, and so they did it posthumously. After he was already dead, they, they dug his body back up and burned him after he was already dead. Imagine this. And these martyrs crying out to God, How long, O Lord? Imagine them crying out for justice and for everything to be made right if Jesus, in fact, never did rise from the dead. All their efforts, all their sacrifice, fruitless? Empty? No, no way. 
Verse 15 gives us our fourth consequence. Uh, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul makes this point. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then all the apostles, all those 500 people uh, who were willing to bear witness of having seen the resurrected Christ, they were all liars. The Apostle Peter sets the standard for us in Acts 2 at Pentecost, this initial proclamation. Acts 2, verse 22, if you want to follow along and following. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That took guts. God raised him up, he says, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for, and this is, remember this is still in the Psalms, David, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. David's in the grave. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, since that wasn't David, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And he finishes that statement with this. Of that, we are all witnesses. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what in the world is Peter doing? He's spreading falsehood. He's either seeing things along with 500 other people simultaneously. That doesn't happen. Or he's straight up lying. And if Peter was lying, do you really think that maybe the idea of being crucified upside down, which Peter was, do you think that threat may have broken his pride and caused him to come clean? The same Peter who the night Jesus was on trial couldn't stand up to a couple people on a bonfire, at a bonfire. That same Peter went to the cross himself for this. The apostles were either right about the resurrection or they were all crazy false teachers. Verse 16 and 17, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Consequence number five. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, resulting in the fact we're still in our sins. Romans 4.25, Paul writes that Jesus was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Meaning this, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and his resurrection proved it. Proved it. If Jesus was a sinner, he would have been an unsuitable sacrifice. Our sacrifice uh, for our sin must be spotless, clean, perfect, without blemish. No regular person is suitable. 
We're all sinners. But the resurrection proves that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is righteous. He is without sin and therefore a perfect, suitable sacrifice. Jesus is our spotless lamb. And his resurrection is the evidence brought before the judge of his perfection. And by that evidence presented, we are declared not guilty. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no evidence of a sinlessness. No evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. And if Jesus isn't our spotless lamb, then our sins have not been paid for. We still owe our debt. Uh, by the way, do you understand at this point, to say that it doesn't really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead or not? False. And think about this now. If Jesus isn't our substitutionary sacrifice, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, if he was a false one, what do we need to do? Well, we'd better repent. We better turn this church into a synagogue and start keeping the old covenant again and looking for the coming Messiah if Jesus isn't really it. Does that make sense? Especially now those Gentiles, the Gentiles who had never uh, served the Lord before they heard of Christ, what's the next question that comes to their mind? Well, what about those who've already died? Verse 18. Then also those, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, Paul says, have perished. The wages of sin is death. And if we're still in our sins, we must be judged by God. He's just. He's just. If Jesus was a fake Messiah, then everyone uh, who ever trusted in his death for their sin put their trust in the wrong place. And they're still paying for their sin in eternal torment and will do so forever. If Jesus isn't the Christ, well then Peter and Paul, all the apostles, Stephen, Timothy, those who came after, the historical figures like Polycarp, Clement, uh, Justin Martyr, Ambrose, Augustine. How about Luther, Calvin, Tyndale, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, Susanna Wesley, Fanny Crosby, Charles Spurgeon, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, uh, J.I. Packer, even somebody in our church's history, think of like an Ed Du Bois. All of them. Where would all these people be today if Christ isn't alive and at the right hand of the Father? Well, the answer is they would all be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever heard this statement? If I'm wrong about the gospel, then I've lost nothing. If you're wrong, well, then you've lost everything. Have you heard somebody say that, something like that before? Or the idea being that even if we're wrong and Jesus isn't risen, our sins aren't forgiven, well, we still haven't really lost anything compared to the person who doesn't believe in God at all. That we both die, we push up daisies, we cease to exist. What's there to lose? Some people even alter this saying and go so far to say that if I'm wrong and Jesus isn't, isn't the answer, if it turns out that I'm wrong and you're right, I still want to believe in Jesus because that's the better life. But what do you think Paul would have to say about that idea? What did verse 19 say? We are of all people most to be pitied. To say that the Christian life is the better life 
even if Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life, even if eternity with him isn't in our future, that kind of assumes that the culture we're around is going to approve of or at least ignore our faith, doesn't it? That it would be advantageous for us in our culture to be Christianized people. That argument wouldn't have been very effective for Stephen before he was stoned. That argument wouldn't be very effective today if you lived in Iran or Saudi Arabia or North Korea or somewhere like that. That argument uh, for Asaph, the writer for Psalm 73, who said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. The Apostle Paul, who gave up the good life as a rising star among the Jewish Pharisees, who put his faith in the risen Christ and then was beaten and stoned and imprisoned and rejected and eventually beheaded. If he went through all that and Jesus hadn't actually been risen from the dead, sorry, dude. No. He wouldn't have lived a better life. He would have abandoned the true faith that he was raised in and given to all his life as if it was a lie or a fictional tale at best. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, we don't say, well, I'd rather be a Christian because it's better. If it's not true, it's not better. And we're of all people most to be pitied. But here's the thing. Okay, I, I promised you some good news at the end. Here's the thing. That tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Witnesses abound, Paul included. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is making intercession for you and for me right now. Jesus didn't stop doing stuff when he went to heaven. He's doing it right now. And he's coming back. Christ has risen from the dead. He's no liar. He's not a lunatic. He is our Savior and Lord. Christ has risen from the dead. So when you proclaim the gospel, when you tell people that Christ died for our sins and that three days later he rose from the dead, those aren't empty words. Those are powerful words. Christ has risen from the dead. And when a person believes in the powerful truth of the gospel, they don't believe in vain. Believing in Christ is eternal life. Christ has risen from the dead. The apostles were not false teachers. They took the powerful truths of the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and it spread to the ends of the earth, and it's still going today. The risen, living Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ has risen from the dead. The evidence of his sinlessness has been brought before the judge, and his sacrifice has proven worthy and sufficient for your sin and mine. Through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have been declared not guilty. Christ's righteousness has been put to our account, and our salvation is guaranteed. Christ has risen from the dead, and every soul who has ever put their faith and trust in Christ, and in Christ alone, is saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and to be absent from the body, Christian, is to be present with the Lord. Christ has risen from the dead, so even if we're hated, 
Even if we're persecuted or mocked or ridiculed or whatever it looks like, uh, whenever it looks like Christians are losing from the perspective of this world, Christian, know this. If we are in Christ, if we are on the Lord's side, no matter what it looks like here, we are on the victory side. There may be reason for tears in these times. Yes? Maybe often in the present. But listen to what's coming. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Listen, if you're here today and you've never repented, never turned to Jesus alone for salvation, for forgiveness of your sins against God, turn to him today. Jesus is the only way. You will only experience this victory and this life, this eternity with God if you have placed all your hope in Christ. Turn to Jesus and be rescued. Christians, truth matters. Christ is risen. Jesus alone saves. God is sovereign. The word of God is sufficient and true. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. He isn't a trick or a gimmick to make your life go the way you want. Jesus is not a card up your sleeve to pull out when you want him to fix your present problem. When that's all he is to us, we cheapen him. I'll give you another L word. We say Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. I say to you, Christian, be careful. Is he to us our Lord or is he leverage to get what we want in this world? Oh, be careful. And when he doesn't work the way we want him to, oh, we get bitter. Get bitter. Think, did Revelation 21 say that when Jesus comes back, all our wildest dreams will come true? Uh, we'll finally get all the things we ever wanted in this world? No, it didn't say that. It said something far, far better. Better. You know, we're fallible, right? Some of the things that I want so desperately are probably things that aren't even good for me. Jesus shouldn't give me those things. And what did it say would happen 
uh, which would bring about the end of all tears and death and mourning and crying and pain. Realize those were secondary. Those aren't the best thing about heaven. Those are secondary. What brought that about? What is God going to give us? And the answer, himself. Himself. Everything will be made right when, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Christian, when Jesus gave you himself, he gave you everything. All we have is Christ, and we need nothing more. Christian, I'm asking and asking myself, Stop going back to the well like the Samaritan woman did before she met Jesus. Drink the living water and never thirst again. Stuff is going to happen in this sin-cursed world. And sometimes it'll be us that does it. And it's going to hurt. But if you have Jesus, you have everything and all the mess that's down here, and all the mess that's still in our heart, has an end date. And everything will be made new. Asaph said it this way in Psalm 73. Asaph had come to use God as leverage. And then this is what he learned. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And it says, because you hold my right hand. Why are we still with God? Because nothing can pluck you out of his hand. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And he concludes this, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Church, Jesus is either coming again or he isn't. Knowing Jesus is all we need for life and godliness or it isn't. The word of God equips us with everything to make us complete For every good work, or it isn't. I'm quoting verses, by the way. Church, Christ has risen from the dead. He's God. He's either my Savior and my Lord, or he isn't. Jesus rose from the dead. He's Lord. He is Lord. So trust in him. Rest in him. Run to him and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the indisputable, undeniable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can come here today and worship Jesus as God and know he is exactly who he said he is.
that we can come here to this place and, and enter into this time of worship and spend this time together studying your word and know it to be true. God, I pray, help our unbelief. Help us to be fervent students of your word. That when we are under the pressures and stress of this world and this life and our own desires and our own hearts that push from without and push from within, that we wouldn't run to the world for escape, but that we would run to Christ, our hope, our life. And God, that progressively as we learn your word, as the Spirit helps us and guides us in it, that we would see the world truly through the lens of Scripture. And God, we thank you that as we learn to do that, as we grow in this, as our faith is strengthened, Lord, we can have peace. We can have joy. We can have certainty. We can feel protection in the midst of all the craziness that might be around us. And that even if the world looks at us and calls us the losers, Lord, that we know we are on the victory side. And we pray even so, come, Lord Jesus. God, we know you are sovereign. We know that your will is perfect. We know there are souls to be saved. So God, I pray that in this time, in this life, in these days, that we would pursue Christ, love people, spread the truth of the gospel. God, help us to grow that we would take this seriously. That we would love you with our whole hearts. That you would be honored and glorified through us, your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.